0: From the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, this is the A and A Yarn podcast. Hello and welcome to A Cuppa and a Yarn from the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. I'm Michelle Lovegrove and I'm sitting here today in a, a, a very special place, Australian Hall in the centre of Sydney uh, with Nathan Moran, who's the CEO of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. So, Nathan, thank you and, and for having a cuppa and a yarn with me today.
1: Oh, Shell, absolute pleasure. Uh, even more deadly to be sitting here in this place, um, the place of places for me and for many Guris, Koorees, Murrays, First Nations people when we get an understanding to our rights agenda and the history of our rights movement.
0: Now, before we get into why we're here at Australian Hall and the importance of being here, uh, Nathan, if you don't mind, I always ask people, firstly, who's your mob?
1: Yeah, so introduce myself, sis. Um, yep. I'm a Buripai, uh through my mother. My mother is from a reserve or mission known as Burnt Bridge the capital city of New South Wales Aboriginal people. No, just joking. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so I'm a Birupai Thunguddy through my mother and my father's actually straight from fresh off a boat in Ireland uh, with Gaelic ancestry and also a slash of Celtic ancestry with a Scottish uh, background for his female lines. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, I identify as a Guri Gaelic uh, for those who don't know um, and then the reality is, of course, I've been born and raised as a Birupai Thunguddy Guri. Uh, but always been known as the Irishman amongst my, yeah, my gurry mob.
0: The black Irishman.
1: Well, not amongst the, the gurries, no, just no? known as the Irishman. You're Irishman. I'm pretty sure amongst the Irish, and I even had it from my dad's brother reached out from that the UK. That you are black Irish? To say, yeah, you'd be the black Irish, I mean, yeah. in many more, th- more ways than one.
0: Wow, so that explains a bit of that uh, feisty warrior blood in your nation. Yeah, or as one person
1: put it, probably more likely or less likely to have anyone want to have a drink at a bar talking sociology with me than anyone on earth.
0: Okay. (laughs) Well, look, thank you very much uh, taking time out of your schedule to have a chat with me today. What we're talking about is January 26th, Invasion Day, Survival Day, Day of Mourning, however you relate to it. And uh, its importance for us, change the date, you know, is always something that comes up as a a theme every single year. But I think, for me, it's very important to have a look at this day, 1938, was a very, very special event, Mm. uh, which you and the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council certainly uh, remembered and many people have remembered ever since. It was the Day of Mourning. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins of the day of mourning?
1: Yes, so firstly, as the CEO of Metro, Local Aboriginal Land Council, as you say, Shell, we are the custodians, the carers Mm -hmm. uh, of the Australia Hall, but also known as 150 to 152 Elizabeth Street, Sydney. This is the site where in the 26th of January, 1938, at approximately 1pm, the first known Aboriginal-only conference put out a charter that we believe may be the first international rights charter of First Nations people being formally presented to the head of the, um, you know, in our case, the, the colony. It was the Prime Minister, Mr Jack Lyons, mm. was the only non-Aboriginal p- present in this hall in 1938 on the 26th of January when they decried their 10-point plan, the first 10-point plan that we know of on earth that talked about the rights or the needs for First Nations or Aboriginal people.
0: It had its own history too didn't it as to as to how we got to that point and just just to let everyone know too if you're hearing a little bit of a uh a feeling of spaciousness i don't want to say echo behind us we are in australia hall it is just nathan and i and it's a beautiful and amazing place with very high ceilings so we're we're going to get that sound and i
1: acknowledge we're sitting nearly virtually in the very place where the photographs are taken of the mob Mm. conducting the actual conference in 1938 one of the more famous photos is where they're um, talking, is Mr Jack Patton with his hand in the air whilst talking, uh, Mr Cooper present, uh, Mr Foster present. We're sitting right in that corner of the Australia Hall. So oh, wow. I feel like we're in the presence of the, the giants of our society. Mm-hmm. But I think the context is quite right to talk yep, about yep. what happened in 1938. Firstly, acknowledging that this area, and acknowledging we are in Gadigal country, always was and always will be Gadigal country. But Gadigal had been the centre of rights movements, actions and activities prior to 1938 and I'd firstly like to acknowledge that certainly in 1788 there was great resistance, I mean there's no, no...
0: doubt about
1: that. There's no doubt, there's no discluding the fact that we fought very hard, you know, and led by Colby and many others and Doringa is his offsider, that's the, the female Doringa the male being Colby as the two respective leaders, patriarchal and matriarchal leaders of the Gadigal, resistance was born here. But certainly what I'd say is in 1909 one of the first ever colored associations on earth was established in Gadigal country indeed at Surrey Hills.
0: Okay.
1: The Australian Colored Association is one of the first formal colored associations of earth. And in 1909 famously included a, a Wanarooer fella and I pay my respects to Mr Maynard. Mr Maynard was a leader in this community coming down from Wanarooer country what some may call today Singleton or Cessnock, He came down to what is Gadigal or Sydney Town, stood on a a box in the domain and did what it was done in the day, told his story on a box. But he was also one of the leaders of our community that helped establish the Coloured Association in 1909. And I'd acknowledge that they hosted and accommodated a man by the name of Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was the first colored or black person to win the heavyweight boxing championship of the world here in Sydney. And the irony is, and I don't think it's an irony for coloured people, he stayed amongst us. He stayed with us. Mm. And that's why he enjoyed his journey. But more importantly, he was able to take back the story of how Australia had a coloured association that assisted him in 1909. And from there, certainly relationships and movements were founded. I'd like to acknowledge the Aboriginal Advancement League, the Progressive Society, the Aboriginal Progressive Societies, who were the more predominant players or organisations calling for the rights of Aboriginal people. Both were predominantly based in Victoria at the time. They, uh, in collaboration with people like Mr Maynard and others, Annie Pearl Gibbs was also involved in other movements, being a brown before her marriage name. Mm. So there were many actions and many activities and many groups thereabouts prior to 1938 calling for the rights of Aboriginal people. But what we've seen in 1938 was all of those groups combining. And I really do pay my respects to all those who attended, convened, organised, ran and facilitated the 1938 Day of Mourning, certainly acknowledging Mr William Ferguson, a very proud Wiradjuri man from Warren Gester, one of our first ever elected union leaders. In fact, I believe the first ever Aboriginal union leader of Australia to be the head of the Shearer's Union. He certainly played a key role, uh, acknowledging Jack Patton, Mr Cooper.
0: William Cooper. Mr Cooper
1: for sure but also as I said earlier Aunty Pearl was a was a pertinent player in fact acknowledging that Aunty Pearl Brown slash married name Gibbs was actually our first ever elected person from the floor of this hall to represent our people that coming together in 1938 to have this day is really uh, a great indication of what you can achieve when you're united but I think there's also some context about why are we here why did it take place here of all places.
0: Absolutely. Why this hall?
1: And I think it's very important that we remind people and we share the knowledge that we were denied access to all public spaces and private places in Sydney when the communities and those organisers were seeking a meeting venue. They were denied access to places like the Sydney Town Hall, the classical Paddington Town Halls and others. And it was actually the Greek, German, Italian and the Mandarin slash Chinese communities who would establish what we have here now called the Australia Hall. It was variously known as the German club, the Italian club, the Hellenic club. And it's the beauty of those ethnic people who brought their culture with them, their language, who didn't assimilate into the newest language of earth, the one we're speaking in, this gobbledook, as my old people might say, that they maintained their culture, their heritage, and they designed this beautiful acoustics in this hall that we're hearing right now. So this is a treasured place. It was called the Australia Hall. But to think when those communities, those ethnic communities found out that we were being denied access to a facility to meet, that they would reach out and offer us access to this hall, I think is a great indication on the strength of, yeah, unity, diversity, and when ethnic cultured people come together, we can achieve anything. And I'd like to pay my respects, honor, to all of those from the German communities, the Greek communities, the Italian communities, and the Chinese communities, who founded, established this hall, and allowed us to have our conference here in 1938.
0: By this point, this is January 26, 1938. There's processions going on outside, people are whooping and hollering, uh, you know, I think there'd been...
1: 150th anniversary, just to That's right,
0: it yeah, yeah, uh, the 150th. So it was sort of uh, a big deal for I guess, people who didn't understand or didn't care to understand what the day represented for its First Peoples. So it was offered, how did that meeting happen, though? We think we're on Elizabeth Street in Sydney here. It was and still is a very significant building. It's a big building and there's all this stuff going on outside. So how did a whole, basically, 100 blackfellas get into the building?
1: Yeah, and I think there's the the truth and the reality on how they did that um, needs to be shared, that Mm. they they came through the black door. Sorry, the back door.
0: The black door.
1: Uh, Mm. Certainly those in our society are aware that we're usually ushered through side avenues, never allowed through the front entrance. But as the picture you painted beautifully, Michelle, that on the front street of Elizabeth Street is the celebrations of the 150th anniversary of the establishment of the penal colony called Australia. And undoubtedly there are people out there who are rightfully or wrongfully celebrating the establishment of this colony on our land and who are in celebration mode, in con- complete contrast to the analogy that we're declaring at the day of mourning. So the beauty, the wisdom and the leadership of the communities, and again acknowledging all those beautiful ethnic communities who allowed us in, and the esteemed wisdom and strategy that they came through the black door so that they didn't interrupt the mainstream protests that we, oh, sorry, celebrations were going on by protest. They came in here, held their forum, conducted themselves immaculately, and for those who have not seen, please have a look on the internet. Thanks to the World Wide Web now, you can look up 1938 Day of Mourning. Just view the attire, the Mm. esteem in which they are carrying themselves, our community, when they are standing on the street, donning placards, calling for citizenship, being as bold as to say, I call for citizenship, or I claim citizenship. And having that embezzled across their chests on placards and posters is an amazing contrast to the reality they needed permission of the welfare board manager or the mission manager just to leave the reserve.
0: To even be here.
1: To think that we had Mm. people from Nunga communities. Mm. Doug Nicholls was here proudly. Uh, From Victoria, as we mentioned earlier. Queensland Murrays all the different parts of the Great Island of Australia and the colony we now call Australia, converging on Sydney town at a time when they weren't allowed to even leave their reserve without permission or authority, that they could somehow convene a conference here in Sydney town on the very day they were celebrating the 150th anniversary of the arrival or establishment of their penal colonies. I don't even know a word that would summarise more powerful than powerful, but talk about the power and the resonating um, resemblance of who we were and the spirit of our warriors, both female and male. Mm. And I acknowledge that, that when you see these photos, you'll see we're a representation of our culture in 1938. Females are elected as our heads. Females are there. They're at the forefront of this, and so are our children. And you can see this in all the photos. A holistic culture was in play. They defied the laws of the colony that said they needed permission to leave. And to stand here in Elizabeth Street, right in the heart of the colony, wearing suits, wearing formal attire, calling for rights, at a time when, yeah, the law said we weren't allowed to walk the street, it's just the biggest display of power I've ever seen in my life, that's for sure.
0: From the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, this is A cover and a Yarn. I'm Michelle Lovegrove and I'm speaking today with uh, Nathan Moran, who's the CEO of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. We are sitting here at Australia Hall on Elizabeth Street in the heart of Sydney uh, discussing uh, where it all began and a, a little bit before then too. We're going to be looking to up to now and into the future of the Day of Mourning on January 26 each year. I was not aware of the, the whole multicultural element of this hall and mm. I'm just imagining all of those different groups uh, apart from the fact that I find it interesting that you know in, thank goodness they were that migrant communities were able to have their own hall but the first peoples weren't a lot of those people too would have experienced the black door themselves anyway wouldn't they
1: I think it's very important that we remind people that in 1938, Australia still had a policy of assimilation. It was
0: a white Australia policy. That's right. White yep.
1: Australia was certainly underway, one of the first policies of this country, uh, to make it a white-only country. But it was also about assimilation. It was an open policy of the government that everyone had to assimilate into <laughs> the newest language of Earth, this English language. We had to assimilate into Anglo-Saxon behaviours and society. And to think that, you know, those proud Greeks, Proud Germans, proud Italians, the first rural immigrants to this country were able to slip in on the virtue of they looked a little bit like them, mm. but of course their behaviours were so much different and the way that they behaved and the way they acted was entirely different to the Anglo-Saxon who had bought no culture, just a, a culture of jails and penal colony attitudes, that they brought with them their language, their songs, their dances, their foods, their culture. For me, I I really believe it's a natural fusion, that those who maintain their culture would join with the actual culture of this land. And I just think it's something that Australia hasn't owned enough, and I just want to acknowledge young Miss Bedford, deadly WA lady, Mm -hmm. doing that right now, trying to break down the barriers and stereotypes that we've just got to talk about just through a black prism, and we're not allowed to share all the different incarnations, different um, movements that have assisted us, and it's an untrue story if we don't share the story of how ethnic Australians, new Australians, helped the first Australians to come up with our 10 point plan here in 1938. It was known as the Italian club, the German club. I'm pretty sure they didn't promote it outside of the hall in public mm-hmm. because they would have had the world, uh, the weight of the world come down on them to tell them to stop speaking German. Dare I say, Ich liebe dich, I love you Germans to all of you, um, same to the Italians. Saying to all of those ethnic groups, because if it wasn't for them maintaining their identity, I'd suggest that maybe we wouldn't have had the opportunity to be in this hall, to speak as we did in our 10-point plan, calling for us to have the right to be us, calling for equity in comparison to any other new Australians. I don't think it would have occurred if we didn't have that ethnic strength, Mm. cultural identity of those Germans, Italians and others. We wouldn't have had this meeting here. This was the day where we gathered and we declared it the day of mourning. And on that day, we elected a representative to carry forward our wishes, our 10-point plan. Mm. And that, of course, was Aunty Pearl Brown, who became married, named Gibbs, and famously was our first ever elected Aboriginal person to represent us. And what she represented was the 10-point plan that the Greater Conference had signed off on.
0: Can we talk about that? Have have, have you got some of the points there? Yeah, I have all
1: 10. Yeah. Uh, but to conversely say, you know, one of those, and I pause on this, was to call for a national policy for Aboriginal people. Mm. We still don't have that. You know, I sit here as a representative of the New South Wales land rights system. We tried for national land rights. It's an unfortunate reality that the Commonwealth chose to ignore our requests of our people, to have an equitable, fair system for all First Nations of Australia not to have the NT only land rights then force us in New South Wales to fight for ours and then allow the other states not to realise it so great sadness when you go through the 10-point plan. Another key point was to have an Aboriginal affairs minister but more Mm. pointedly and more strategically they wrote that that should be a full cabinet minister Right. We still haven't achieved and when I go through the list um, the establishment of an Aboriginal affairs department with an all-Aboriginal advisory board didn't get there, nearly Atsik. Newswalk, yes. Unfortunately, but when we look at it, the calls for marriage equality, equality to access housing, equality to access health, for land to be set aside, the right to be yourself and to practice your identity. All of these things I must um, affirm and say from my point of view have not been achieved. Mm. Here we are, we're in the most advanced rights system of the colony of Australia, it's New South Wales land rights, where we have local land councils working up to an elected state land council. Unlike any other land rights systems, we have local empowered communities. But unfortunately, it's not what they espouse in the 10-point plan. So when you go to the heart of the 10-point plan, if we looked at a um, scorecard, I don't even think we got 10%. It's a great um, reminder of how far or maybe how far we've not come since the 1938 where people spoke purely from the heart, talking about the right to be themselves, the right to have the same services, access, health, housing, employment and other things that everyone else does. And we still haven't got there, so.
0: With that 10-point plan, would you agree, Nathan, that some of those there has been some partial success, if you like? When you're talking about, okay, for an example, an uh, Aboriginal Affairs Minister with full Cabinet status. Mm. So we've had partial success. We do have an Aboriginal Aboriginal Affairs Minister, finally, but not with that all- all No, all Aboriginal
1: advisors. I agree. And I do not jokingly say this. It's about a 10% strike success Mm. record from that Mm. 10-point plan. Yes, we may have had an Aboriginal Affairs Minister, but that Minister has not got the power of being a Cabinet Minister. That's not what the old fellas we on to and they were aware of in mm. 1938. Mm. I'm, just, I'm just finding it hard that we're say 82 years later sitting here realising we've only received 10% of a 10 point plan that is not over the top. And I challenge anyone who hasn't seen it, you can get it on a public Google search, Bing search, whatever your search engine is. Look up the 10 point plan from 1938 day of morning. Make up your own assessment by any means. Please assess to see what you believe progress has been done against that. And I believe, based on the feedback I've got from my 580-odd members and many members before them, is we haven't achieved one of the 10 points yet.
0: You're listening to a cuppa and a yarn. I'm speaking with uh, Nathan Moran from the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council about uh, January 26, about the day of mourning, which uh, occurred... Firstly, with a history behind it, of course, in in 1938, and continues until today. Now, Nathan, you know we're talking about this great hall. Uh, it was originally under the uh, beautiful care of a, a number of uh, ethnic groups. Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council is the owner of the hall now.
1: Yes, and we should should a- acknowledge yeah. the process that absolutely with the um, the assistance of the first ever incarnation of uh, native title legislation, there was the establishment of the ILC. Of course, it's only got Mm. an S in it now, but the Indigenous Mm. Land Corporation was established. And thereabouts in 1998, certainly, ironically, on the very long weekend known as the knockout, Metro (laughs) Land Council submitted an application to the Indigenous Land Corporation, who had only been established just 12 months earlier, but had finally opened up the gates to say, call for submissions. And the irony is that we lodged on the long weekend in 1998 a request that this building be acquired from the then Hellenic community who hung on to it, so thanks to the section of the Greek community, the Hellenic group, who kept and maintained the ownership, custodianship of the hall. And we negotiated after successful, or um, well, getting successful grant application from the Commonwealth, Land so- uh, Indigenous Land Corporation, they negotiated the purchase of the property and handed ownership of the property to us maintaining a caveat for their original uh, purchase price. So I would suggest it's one of the better stories uh, of native title when we look at the recompense for those who don't have native title. We're in Gadigal country and we haven't seen any recompense for the lack of native title to Gadigals. This would be one of the only things that they could do uh, to acknowledge some sort of payback or recompense for Gadigal, what it suffered. So, yeah, in 1998, I'm very proud to say the Metro Land Council made a submission and a successful one to lead to the purchase of this building.
0: So, coming up 23 years now. Yeah, but then acknowledging our land council,
1: no disrespects to other land councils, but our council with the background of being, you know, the heart and soul of the 1938, we've got Mm. a concentration of knowledge keepers and knowledgeable people. And um, certainly, I believe that's what led to us doing the submissions. And then even in the way that the building was first established, they actually, this land council set up an independent company so the pressure wouldn't be on the land council in case it didn't match up, stack up, mm. or it had legal problems that the land council could be protected, indemnified, mm. you would say, in a legal sense. And we set up our first ever entity and now here we are. Land Rights now encourages land councils to set up entities to limit the liabilities, indemnity, for potentially land councils, um, you know, Losing their whole entire setup if something goes wrong with an operation. So the history of this building, submitting to the land corporation, getting a successful one, having a look at how to protect the land council in setting up a corporation. Yeah, it it's a really a a, a world leading way of doing business here in City, in Gadigal country, be it slash called Redfern.
0: And this building then most certainly uh, since Metro Lark has been owner, but I do believe, you know, from 19, 1938 until that time, anyway, was there a Day of Mourning held here every year? Pretty no, much, not, no? Not,
1: not, no, not until the Land Council had taken full stock and ownership of the of mm. the building, and then we formally commenced doing Day of Mourning commemorations mm. in the year 2012. Okay. And I have to point out that as we talk, this will be the first year, 2021, that we won't be able to have a commemorative morning tea to commemorate the 1938 day of mourning. Due to COVID, due to health restrictions, we're unable to have more than 40 people in the hall. And I've got to say, led by my chair and my board, we just don't think that's fair or reasonable to only allow 40 people at a time in a hall that you know, has literally thousands upon thousands of people who are directly connected to this place and the movement of 1938.
0: But I know when you um, hold the commemorations every year, there are direct references to that, what it means, why it's important, and you also have people come in to, to sing and to talk. Dare I
1: say, um, a standard agenda every year we yes, have with Michelle is... Yes. Um, we have a keynote address or a speaker who will talk about the background, the impacts of the 1938 Day of Mourning. so speakers including, um, you know, Paul Coe, one of the founders of our movement, beautiful leader of the Wiradjuri. Geez, we've had Aidan Ridgeway speak in the hall. We've had many esteemed leaders come in and speak on the impacts of the 1938, but none more than the descendants, and I want to stop there and say we have the descendants of those organisers, so I want to acknowledge, say, Shannon Foster recently. Mm-hmm. Shannon's grandfather was an original organiser and convener of the 1938 Day of Mourning. Mr Foster's lampooned on all the photos you'll see around this hall. But to have his granddaughter in here to talk about that, absolutely amazing. And then to have Annie Pearl Gibbs's granddaughter come in, I think that... Yeah, sorry guys, I'm just scratching my head. I can't think of a better thing to be doing than allowing the descendants of the organisers to come in. And that's Miss Annie Druitt. Annie, I mm-hmm. hope you're listening. Came in and shared her journey as the granddaughter of Pearl Gibbs, Shannon the granddaughter of Tom Foster. For us, that's what it's all about, commemoration of those leaders, more importantly, the leadership that they displayed. And then in a modern day sense, it's a day for us to celebrate our ongoing survival. And, and to be quite honest, on the backs of the 1938, I think it's about our sharing our proudness of the leadership and the strategies that our old people came out with that I would suggest is still being sought today in mainstream societies around Earth, not just Australia is strategy that's based on fairness and equity for all. You see that in the 1938 Ten Point Plan. And every year now, when we get together, we certainly mix up not just a keynote address, we get some deadly musical performers. So we've had the esteemed, you know, jeez, how do I start? Yeah, Roger right. no, Knox. No pecking order, guys, but no, Uncle Jeff Carmody. <laughs> uh, Uncle Roger Knox, yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry, Uncle he's, rog, got, he's for, got to be yeah, number one. Sorry, yeah, for Uncle For all Kev. the New South Wales, Gummer Roy's, Murrays, <laughs> you're going to go Uncle Roger. Uh, for for all those northern Murrays up into the Queensland Valley, you're probably going to go Uncle Kev. Some may go Uncle Archie Roach. I may go Thelma Plum. We've had some... Uh, Shelley uh, Morris. Shelley Morris. Mm. Again, can't forget Shell. Yanua woman. burulula stuff all over. But look, we just have those beautiful things where, you know, uh, Mr Geyer, um, one of the keepers of our, you know, nearly national anthems, Yulala, Yule.
0: yeah. come
1: in. He's also an original artist of our mural at Redfern. Uncle Joey come in and sang in the hall too, so it's about giving those opportunities uh, for musical performers to come in and then every year we mix it with culture, um, certainly in the last couple of years we've had our culture led by the grandson of Mr Cooper, Mr Darren Williams, hope you're out there Darren, don't know where you are today my brother, Radri man but sometimes works all over the country as an educator, sharing culture, so to have the descendants of those organisers come in and provide the activities is everything to us. And more importantly, it's about the sharing and reaffirming of what they did and the strategy they showed and displayed. And then certainly inviting non-Aboriginal invitees these days, mm. be they Lord Mayors, be they Mr Keatings and others to come in, Mr Foley, most you know, maybe not the Labor leader today, but certainly did come into this building and sat and participate in our day of mourning. And that's what we're looking for. Mr Greenwich, the local state member, has come in this hall, Uh, Ms Clovermore and others. But it's about interacting with mainstream societies, trying to get them to learn more about this, and then hopefully when they know more about it, they won't be so um, shocked by it, challenged by it, or hopefully not opposing our requests.
0: But as you say, this year, unfortunately, COVID-19, coronavirus, is stopping that really significant gathering. But even though physically we're going to be apart, In our hearts, not necessarily so, and for me personally, I think it was very important that we do have this yarn, and thanks so much for being available to have it, uh, about the day of mourning and why it continues to be important to us. For our young fellas who, you know, I dare say may not know some of the intricacies of, of the origins of the day and this place for this year, for January 26, 2021, wh- what would you say to them, Nathan?
1: Oh, it's imperative that they learn more about their own histories, mm. particularly this history we're talking about. And this is where we without putting pressure on one beautiful Gary from <laughs> Goombanga <laughs> Country, of course Uncle Gary Foley, one of the leaders of our communities in, in the rights agendas, that we now look at how people can learn more about our rights movement, because I certainly I'm very happy and gleeful to hear the yarns about Uncle Gary and Miss Katona and others getting together to try and put together some learning for for young First Nations slash Aboriginal or Indigenous people to learn about their history because you ain't going to learn it at school. It's not in the curriculums. I certainly would attest it's not in universities that I've went to uh, where they're not actively teaching activism. Uh, The principles and the foundations of our rights movements that, you know, yes there was resistance But then there was great strategy and political leadership that occurred here in Gadigal country, as I started with, from the coloured associations, one of the first on Earth, 1909, to having this conference here in 1938. It well predates the United Nations. At a time when, you know, the United Leagues of Europe were still trying to look at how you could get overarching rights for humans on Earth, we come out and decried a 10-point plan in writing too, I want to add all those naysayers who think we can't convert or learn new ways. Yeah, it was in black and white writing. It wasn't just verbal. And for me, that's at the heart of what we're trying to do every year at Metro Land Council, is to get the next generations to learn more and more about the movement, so that they don't uh, you know, my words, don't go off in a journey that's unnecessary and or try and reinvent wheels that are already being created. I, I'd rather that they learn to pick up where it's already been to, or where it's aim to and then continue the work to get it towards where it should be. And in this case, I think our 10-point plan should be paramountly the number one benchmark or watermark or assessment of how we progress as First Nations people. And I think that's the challenge now, to get back to what occurred in 1938. Put down your spears, put down your pencils, whatever your weapons or your resources are and collaborate, work in a unified sense. If we do that, we can achieve anything. I'd really love to see a unified system of representation again
0: now we've been talking a lot about that ten-point plan. Nathan has um, discussed a couple of them, but we will make that available online. I think it's important yes. to have a look at have a look at those points. And you know, Nathan, the journalist in me, I'm just I, I know people have done things before, but this is making me want to go back and actually do some work on each of those uh, leaders uh, from those those two main organisations in mm. particular. Although I know there were more. And let's, let's revisit who they were and are in the hearts of their descendants now. And um, I think that this is a good time, particularly this year, when we can't all be together.
1: I think it's immensely important. One of the paramount issues of commemorating every year is to get that more knowledge now. Mm. I mentioned some of the leaders and their descendants. Uh, but you'll also be amazed at how many descendants of those organisers don't actually know or aren't fully aware of what their old people were doing. And I actually, one of the greatest satisfactions is actually, yeah, sharing with people about what their great-grandparents did in this hall and the astounded uplift in their spirit. You see their head raised, their shoulders pinned back and immediately the proudness that's instilled in them to realise that they're descended from, can I quote a quote that was said here in this hall? Yeah, please. I believe he's one of your mob. He said, we are not chickens, we are eagles. That was Doug Nichols. Yes,
0: we are eagles.
1: We are not chickens. We do not feed from the ground off what's left. We are eagles who soar. We go above. That, for me, summarises the difference between First Nations, Aboriginal Australians and those who unfortunately believe in a power that the government should control them. And as Uncle Doug had said very proudly, we are eagles. We soar. We are not chickens who feed from the ground.
0: And just uh, remembering what you mentioned right at the start of this conversation, Nathan, where we are sitting in Australia Hall today, everybody is pretty much in that place where those eagles soared in 1938.
1: And a reminder and a challenge at the same time to me and all (laughs) Aboriginal people, leaders or whomever, that we can't accept the, the feed that's fallen on the ground or the scattered bits or the crumbs. We must have the integrity as human beings to say that we are equal to anyone on earth. We do not deserve the crumbs or the feed of anyone, let alone those who have come to our land and our country, displaced us, dishonoured us, done horrible desecration of our country and our people. And then to allow them to determine what's right, I just think is a fundamental failure of a human being. And I hope that our mob will get back to the understanding of the power of knowing who you are should instil within you the equalness to not allow yourself to accept being tret, subservently or disrespectfully, or as someone who only gets the scattered what's on offer.
0: You've been listening to A Cuppa and A Yarn. I'm speaking with uh, Nathan Moran, who's the CEO of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. We're talking about January 26, uh, day of mourning, and uh, its origins pre the first uh, meeting in 1938. And I hope you found this informative and I hope that it perhaps inspires you to maybe do a bit more reading and uh, finding out who these eagles actually were and how they live on in 2021. Nathan, thank you so much for a cuppa in the yarn.
1: Oh, Chell, thank you so much for having this opportunity to share this beautiful story of a beautiful point in our history. I say one of the high points of our rights history. Thanks again, sis.